So, 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 so good to be back. So good to be back. I didn't, I didn't intend to wear the same shirt this morning that I was wearing in the video. But the highlight, Ryan already tweeted about my shirt. <laughs> Look, the highlight of my vacation was I got a new shirt, and I'm really excited about it. And I've wore, I wear it a lot. I've just worn it a lot, so... <laughs> I graduated the red shirt. If you remember the red shirt, rest in peace, red shirt. So, <laughs> I'm so happy to see you like this. I just I missed you guys. I missed this being with you. And uh, you know we're the 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 core like purpose of this gathering to be shoulder to shoulder in solidarity with one another, but gazing upon the one whom has redeemed us, and to, to just sit and worship with each other, to encounter Jesus, not just as individuals, but as a community of leaders, missionaries, people who are set apart, sold out for him and his cause in the city. There's just nothing quite like this. I just miss it. I'm excited to be with you. We're, we're, we're finishing up Acts over the next three weeks. Three more weeks. Three weeks. We're finishing Acts. And this morning we're taking just a really small chunk. It's chapters 22 through 26, four chapters uh, this morning. And I put I put a little I put a little text on your paper that that maybe I wanted to give you something on the back of your paper. It's it's just the toward the tail end of our uh, a passage that we're wrestling with this morning. But we're doing four chapters, so t- typically. Um, Typically, I free you to like read the text. Everybody read the text on their own uh, uh, and wrestle with it on your own. I give you some time to do that. And then we, and then we get in like little groups and we dialogue uh, uh, about, about the text. And then we have like a big kind of Bible study. We, hit, we pass a microphone around. We have like this big wide open Bible study for a little while. Uh, but this morning, I'm, I'm not going to do that because it's four chapters. <laughs> so I'm not going to free you to read four chapters. And then we're going to have like a big dialogue about four chapters. Um, so what I'm what I'm going to do for uh, um, a little bit different this morning is I'm going to actually walk us through what happens. I'm going to give a summary of those four chapters, and I'm going to explain why we're taking them as a whole, taking it as a whole. Those four chapters as a whole, chapters 22 to 26, uh, because I think it's I think there's reason to do that. And then I'm just going to jump in this morning, um, which uh, uh, um, I think will help us. Just you know. We did get a little bit of a late start this morning. Those of you who are like locked out of the parking garage, I'm so sorry. Those of you who did get into the parking garage, uh, God, you have favor. The favor of God is on your life this morning. Um, but the the they were power washing the second floor of the parking garage this morning, and they don't care about us. So um, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in. I'm gonna walk us through this, and I'm gonna explain a little bit why we're doing it. Can we just pray for a minute before we before we jump in? God, we, Lord, we we just uh, surrender to you this morning. We come we come underneath your authority. We come underneath your leadership, and we just acknowledge our lack. We just acknowledge our our. Uh, we're unwise without you. We're weak without you. We can't see without your eyes. We can't hear without your voice. And so, God, would you come this morning? Would you just 
empower, reveal, fill the room, fill us. and Do what you will this morning. Whatever you want to do, whatever you want to say, would you do it? Refine us this morning. It's in your name. Amen. I wanted to take chapters 22 to 26 in one sweep because it's very repetitive. If you're familiar with this chunk of Acts, it's extremely repetitive. And it carries a few repetitive features, uh, which those repetitive features really stand out when you look at all of it in one sweep. And also, if we were to take like four weeks to go over it, we'd just be having pretty pretty close to the same conversation every week for four weeks because it's very repetitive. So I want to take it in one sweep, but if you if you just allow me to like walk us through what happens uh, 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 for for a few minutes here at the at, toward the end of chapter 21, actually, Paul is you'll remember this. Paul is arrested. At the end of chapter 21, he, 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 gets, he finally gets to Jerusalem. He was trying to get to Jerusalem. Everybody was telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. You're, like, you're going to get bound when you get to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you when you get to Jerusalem. And he goes anyways because he feels compelled by the Spirit that he needs to reach Rome and the ends of the earth. And the only way to get there, for some reason, is through Jerusalem. He's got to go to Jerusalem. And he gets there, and when he gets there, he tries to be as Jewish as possible. He, he, like, he like goes to the temple, goes through a purification ritual, and still they, they still accuse him of being like anti-temple, anti-law, anti-Jew, spreading all this falsehood all over the place uh, about, about the way and about Jesus of Nazareth, and they end up uh, causing a riot. And the, a Roman commander has to come down and uh, uh, deliver Paul from this riot situation. So he binds him with chains and pulls him out of this riot situation and takes him to some barracks. But before they go to the barracks, Paul tells the commander, the commander's name is Lysias, Paul tells the commander, before you take me away, can I just talk to the crowd for a minute? Can I just talk to this riot for a second? And the commander's like, I don't know why a commander would say yes to this, but the commander's like, yeah, sure, totally. Let's just get, yeah, sure, you can have a word with the, with the riot. Yeah, sure, fine. Uh, so Paul speaks to the, this rioting crowd, and he speaks in Aramaic. And because he's speaking in Aramaic, they quiet down and they give him a hearing. Uh, they decide to listen to him for a minute. And he essentially says, look, Y'all know me. I'm a I'm a Jew. I'm like a really I'm a super Jew. I'm a great Jew. I'm, I was like I, I I'm, I've been like about the law my whole life, and I was born in Tarsus, and I've studied the law. I studied the law under Gamaliel, so like you guys know him. And I was one of his. I like grew up under the teaching and leadership and mentoring under Gamaliel. Uh, I was, and if you don't remember, just to let you know, I was like the one who invented persecuting Christians. I was like killing Christians and kidnapping Christians and persecuting Christians because of my commitment to uh, 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 the law, to the temple. But then there was this day on the road to Damascus. And he tells the crowd, I was on the road to Damascus, and there was this light and I got knocked to the ground by this light and the voice of Jesus came out and asked, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And 
And, 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 and Jesus, through this, this circumstance of events, ended up call, like redeeming me, saving me, and calling me to serve him and to preach. And everybody's still held captive by his attention. People are still listening to him. People are still listening to his story. And then he, and then he says this one last line to the crowd. He says, uh, 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 he says that Jesus told him, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And suddenly, people can't listen anymore. They're like, they're like, we were with you kind of on the Damascus Road and the voice of the Lord and all this kind of stuff. And then, and then he, that voice said, go to the Gentiles. And they erupt. And they say things like, rid the earth of him. And he is not fit to live. And they just explode. And so again, the commander has to take Paul and say, look, I gave you, I, I gave you a, a chance to speak to the crowd. This didn't go so well, so we're just going to keep removing you. And they take him to the barracks. And when they take Paul to the barracks, they decide Paul decides to, or the, the commander decides to interrogate and flog Paul because he's assuming Paul's done something wrong. I don't quite understand what he did wrong, so I'm just going to interrogate and flog him until he tells me what he did wrong to get clarity around the charges made about him. And right before he's about to flog him, Paul says, Are you, "Is it legal to flog a Roman citizen?" I was just curious. Before you do, I'm ready. Just wanted to ask. And they kind of they freak out. They're like, "Wait, you're a Roman citizen? How could this be possible?" They go to the commander and they say, "He said he's a Roman citizen." The commander goes to Paul and says, "I had to, the commander says I had to spend so much money to become a Roman citizen." And Paul says, "I was born a Roman citizen." And it says that they they all backed away, like physically backed away. <laughs> all right, where what what do we have here? What what's going on here? So they, they, they still need clarity on his charges, but they can't beat it out of him because he's, he, he is entitled to due process as a Roman citizen. So what the commander does is he releases Paul again to the Sanhedrin. That's the last passage we studied where he gets released to the Sanhedrin, and he shows up to the Sanhedrin, and he says, Look, I've kept all of, all of God's like, uh, purposes. I've been righteous before God my entire life. And the high priest of the Sanhedrin, Ananias, sends one of his servants to go slap him in the face. He gets slapped, and then Paul says, you whitewashed tomb, you slap me in the face, God will slap you. Uh, and then there's like a little bit of a tussle, and then Paul realizes the people accusing him are, is made up of Pharisees and Sadducees who disagree with one another about the resurrection. And so Paul brilliantly decides, he says, look, we all know why I'm on trial here. The reason I'm on trial is because I'm a, I'm, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, and I believe in the bodily resurrection. That's the reason I'm on trial. And suddenly the Pharisees are like, we like this guy. He really, he, maybe, a, maybe an angel visited him and gave him these, this wisdom. And the Sadducees are like, five minutes ago, you wanted to kill him with us. What, what's happening? And they start, they get into, Paul causes this big dispute. And it turns in, again, it turns into this kind of like violent situation. So again, the commander has to come in, take him, pull him back out of this like violent situation, take him back to the barracks. And, uh, and, and, once, and the commander arrests Paul, takes him to the barracks. Then there's 40 Jews who decide to take a hunger vow that they, that they will not eat or drink until they kill Paul. And they go to the Sanhedrin, these religious, these like representatives of righteousness and holiness and God's heart and mind of the world. And these 40 conspirers to the, to the murder of Paul go to the Sanhedrin and say, look, we've taken a hunger vow. We're not going to eat or drink until we kill Paul. So what we need you to do, Sanhedrin, is to go tell the Roman commander to bring Paul back to you 
because you want to interrogate him one more time. And then when he's being transported, we'll ambush and kill him. And the Sanhedrin thinks, what a great plan. That sounds righteous and holy and good. Let's do that. So they go tell the so so they're about to go tell the commander to bring Paul and and interrogate him one time, but Paul's nephew overhears the conspiracy. We didn't even know before this Paul had a nephew. <laughs> we didn't even know Paul had a sister. Like he you know, but Paul's nephew somehow hears of this conspiracy, goes to visit Paul, says, "Hey Paul, I heard of this conspiracy. These guys aren't going to eat or drink until they murder you, and they're going to ambush you on the way to the Sanhedrin." And Paul's like, "I'm going to need you to go to the, tell the commander right now." So then the nephew goes to the commander, tells the commander, and the commander's like, thank you for telling me. Please tell no one you told me. And then the commander immediately dispatches 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen in the night like a, mil like a militia in the night to take Paul from where he is in these barracks to, Caesare to uh, Caesarea. Basically, that's where the governor of Rome, that's where, that's where the commander's boss is. To take him to the governor of Rome, which is Felix, and to say, let's let the governor deal with this guy. Like, it's above my pay grade at this point. You know, let's, let's just send him on and send him with a dispatch to make sure he doesn't get killed. Uh, uh, survive the night to Caesarea. Let's give it to Felix. It's above me. It's above me now. Let's take it to Felix. So he did, they go to Felix. And, and uh, again, once Felix gets him, Felix's immediate question is the exact question the commander has been dealing with. What are the actual charges against this guy? So the commander tells the high priest, Ananias still, and the Sanhedrin, why don't you come down to Caesarea and, and make, your char make your case against this guy? So they come down with an attorney, with representation. They come down with an attorney. And they're going to make their case against this guy. So they, they sit before Felix, the governor, and they say, they actually get the, the, the attorney, the representation they brought, they actually get really political. They say, they kind of lead off talking to this go, Roman, Roman governor and say, We have us, the Jews, the Jewish people, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and, for, and, and, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. They're like complimenting him. You're so great. We love our, 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 our existing partnership and relationship with you. And in order not to weary you further, would you listen to us in this matter? It's a little bit of an indirect threat. Like, if you don't do this for us, don't you tick us off on this. And then they make their case against Paul. But again, Felix is kind of like, these are kind of religious matters. Rome doesn't care about this. This is your own problem. He's not breaking any Roman laws. And Felix gives Paul a chance to defend himself. And Paul says again, very similar to the crowd, Paul says, look, I'm a Jew, I'm a, like a really Jew, I'm a super Jew, I'm a mega Jew, I'm like super Jewish. And I'm like all about the law, and I've studied the law, and I studied under Gamaliel, and I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, and like, like this, this is who I am, I respect the temple, I honor it. And then I was on the road to Damascus, and there was a light, and I was knocked on the road, and the voice of Jesus and I was delivered, and I was, and I was saved, and I was commissioned by him to serve and to preach the gospel. And really, this is just an issue of the resurrection. They just have a problem about the bodily resurrection. <laughs> they put him in holding under guard. You know, Felix basically puts him on, on, under guard and says, 
I'm just going to hold you for a minute until I, I have the commander come and talk to me and we'll work this out. But he holds him under guard for two years. Felix is basically just like, I don't want to deal with this. And puts him under guard and holding for two years. But it says over the course of that two years, he would regularly invite Paul to come and talk to him, the governor Felix, and his wife about the way of the kingdom and about righteousness and about self-discipline and about the coming judgment. And after two years, we don't know why, but after two years, Felix was succeeded by a new governor named Festus. And guess what Festus has to deal with his first week in office? Who is this Paul person? Why is he here? We don't have any charges on the books against this guy. What is happening? And he says, uh, I guess we should invite over the, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, and we'll have a little court, a little court situation. So again, it's like, it's the same, we're doing the same thing. It's the same like pony show here. Like, let's just bring these guys down. You'd think these guys two years later would chill. It's been two years. Two years is a long time. I don't even remember what happened two years ago. The women's world, the women just won the World Cup. That felt like two years ago. I don't, do you remember anything that happened two years ago? What were the songs that were popular two years ago? I don't even know. But two years, these guys were still wanted to kill him, still had the same plan to ambush him. They didn't even change their plan. We're still going to ambush him. I don't know if they'd ate or drank yet. I sure hope. Like, did they survive? Did all those people die? And, like, there's just a new crowd of people trying to eat. So they, they're going to go to Festus, and they basically tell Festus, look, here's the situation. Um, Here's our charges against him, and we just think it's best if you transport him back to Jerusalem, and we'll just have a we'll just have a hearing in Jerusalem. You know what they're trying to do? They're going to ambush him on the way. So then Festus goes to Paul, and Festus says, "Go ahead and make your case." What do you think Paul says? I was a Jew, and I was, and and I was Pharisee of Pharisees, and on a teaching Gamaliel, I didn't do any of this stuff, and I was on a road to Damascus, and Jesus, and now I'm, I'm, I'm called to serve and to preach. The, and, and he says, and Festus is trying to do a, do, a, do a solid for these like Jewish leaders. And so he says, look, Paul, listen, I think you're innocent. Why don't you just agree to go have a hearing in Jerusalem? Defend your case in Jerusalem. And Paul knows, I'm going to die. If you send me, I, there's going to be an ambush, I'm going to die. So he says, he basically challenges his authority and says, isn't, aren't we standing right now in the court of Caesar? Isn't this like, aren't we standing right now in like the top authority, but you want to send me to a lesser authority to decide on this? It's your, it's your decision. So I, he says the words, I appeal to Caesar. Basically meaning like, I'm calling your authority. And if you're not going to decide, don't send me to Jerusalem. Send me to Rome. Send me to your boss. It's above me. You know, send me to your boss. And he and Festus is stuck. He has to oblige that request. So Festus is trying to figure out how to send him to have a hearing with Caesar. But Festus would be shamed. Fest, Festus, the governor, would be like dishonored and shamed. And there'd probably be consequences if he sends Paul to Rome without clear charges against him. They still don't know what he's being what the charges are, what the Roman charges are. So he basically decides to consult the Jewish king at the time, King Agrippa, and basically help, like, what do you, do you bro, help me, help me. <laughs> help me, man, what do I do with this? So he tells them all about Paul, and King Agrippa says, why don't I give Paul, why don't I hear Paul? 
So then they bring Paul to Agrippa, and they, they, and they bring like the Sanhedrin to Agrippa, and they say, what, what are the charges? What's the problem? And then they hear the charges, and then, and then King Agrippa's like, Paul, you can have a hearing. And what do you think Paul says? I was a Jew. I was like a major Jew. I was a super Jew. And I, and I, I was persecuting Christians. I was killing Christians. I studied under Gamaliel. And, and then there was this road to Damascus. I was on the road to Damascus. And there was a light. And I was knocked down by the light and the voice of Jesus. And now I'm serving and I've been commissioned by him to preach the gospel. And Festus interrupts this, this conversation between Paul and King Agrippa with these lines that I've gave you, verses 24 through 29. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. And he says, you are out of your mind, Paul. And he shouted at him, your great learning is driving you insane. And Paul says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. King Agrippa, the Jewish king, he knows these things. He's familiar with this. He's familiar of these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice. He knows. He knows. Because none of this was done in a corner. And he turns to King Agrippa and he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? The cojones on this guy. He turns to King Agrippa, the one proceeding over this, and says, you believe the prophets, don't you? And then Agrippa says to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? <laughs> you're like, you're really trying to, you're in the middle of a court proceeding and you're trying to do evangelism on me? He says, he says, he says, short time or long, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. And they kind of convene in a corner, Festus and King Agrippa, and they decide, look, we could set this guy free right now if he wouldn't have appealed to Caesar. But because he appealed to Caesar, we've got to send him. We've got to send him. I want, to, I want to talk this morning about this, this, this repeating answer that Paul has. This, it's, it's, he doesn't change what he says. He just is opened up to these same moments every time. And he has almost verbatim the same answer every time. What I want to talk about this morning is how apologetics and sound arguments and evidence are nice. They're good. They're important. But our testimony of a transforming encounter with Jesus is better. Better. As was always the sovereign plan of God, Paul kind of stumbles into a rare, curious, open audience with layers upon layers of some of the most socially and politically powerful people in the day. And what does he do in almost every single setting? Before the commander in the crowds, he says, I was an elite Jew. I was a, a student. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was born in Tarsus. I know the law, front and back. I was a murderer. I was a persecutor. I was a kidnapper. But then that road to Damascus. But Jesus. 
And now I am willing to suffer and I'm willing to die and I don't care what you think and I don't care what you decide. I am who I am and I must do what I must do. And before Felix and in probably dozens of meetings before Felix and his wife over the course of two years, he says, I was an elite Jew. I was from Tarsus. I knew the law front and back and I was a persecutor of Christians. But then that road to Damascus and Jesus and the voice and the light. And now I am willing to suffer and die and I don't care what you think and I don't care who knows it. I must do what I must do because I am who I am. And then before King Agrippa, he says, I was an elite Jew, and I was from Tarsus, and I studied under Gamaliel, and I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and I know the law better than you do. And then there was that road to Damascus. I was reminded this week of that popular line in 1 Peter 3.15, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. This, this line, this line has become a staple in almost every evangelism training I've ever participated in and every evangelism training I've ever facilitated and put on. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But it all comes down to that word reason. The answer you give completely depends on what is the reason for the hope that you have. I remember my, my freshman year in college, I took a speech class, com, uh, uh, speech communication, speech comm. 90% of students take this, this pesky class, speech comm, speech communications, first year. And not a single one of them like it. Nobody likes it. It's the worst class most people take in college because so many people are afraid of public speaking. It's terrible. And you're in a room with people you don't know, and you're, it's your first year of college, and it's awkward, and you're like trying to figure each other out, and you've got six months to do it, less than that, four months, and, and you've got to give speeches to each other. And there was this week where I think it was the persuasive speech. You had like five minutes to give us persuasive speech. And, you know, we do like a certain amount of those speeches every day. People were presenting. And there was this kid in my class who did a – I didn't. I didn't. I didn't have the guts to do it. But the, there was a kid in my class who did a persuasive speech, and the title of the speech was, The Reason for the Hope That I Have. And I looked at this kid, and I said, man, guts, guts. And he's I, – I appreciate the heart, guts. But he spent five minutes talking about the validity of the Bible as a credible source and the historicity of Jesus and the scientific evidence for the reality of God. He spent his entire time on ap apologetics, evidence, data, reasoning, reasonableness of the faith. And oftentimes this, this line... Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. We hear that word reason and we immediately think reasoning and logic and data and science and evidence and apologetics. But guys, I'm telling you, none of, the, the, none of those things are the reason for my hope. None of those things are the reason for your hope. The historicity of the Bible is not the reason for your hope. And it's not going to be the reason for anybody else's hope. 
And I think apologetics and evidence and data and reasoning is good, and I think you should learn it, and I think your microchurch should learn it, and I think if you're a leader, you should help people understand it. But it can only do so much. It, it, it tears down people's barriers to an open, honest hearing of Jesus. But you've got to have that too. <laughs> you've got to be able to tell people what your reason for your... You know what that is? An encounter with Jesus. The Damascus Road. The voice of God. A powerful encounter. The majority of my evangelism training in college was centered around this kind of like apologetic evidence, Lee Strobel, case for Christ, case for faith. But Paul, when Paul is given four opportunities to give an answer for the reason of the hope that he has, does, how, how does he answer? He answers with the Damascus Road every time. He's only got one bag of tricks, Damascus Road. What was Paul's reason for his hope? He had a testimony, and he had to testify about it, and you couldn't get him to stop. He had to testify. And every time he testified, it followed a similar pattern every single time, a similar story arc every single time. I was, I was, I was, I was, I was a Jew. I, I did study under Gamaliel. I was from Tarsus. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was about the law. I was about the temple. But Jesus, but Jesus, Jesus, but Jesus. And now because of him, I am willing and I suffer and I serve and I preach and I am who I am now. I was, I was, I was, I was, I was, but Jesus. And now because of him, I am and I am and I am and I am. You see, you can disagree with an argument, but it's hard to disagree with a story. It's hard to disagree with an experience. It's hard to disagree with a radical encounter especially from a trustworthy source who demonstrates integrity in every other domain of life, someone who demonstrates love and character in every other domain of life, and suddenly you encounter this one little thing and somebody thinks, you're a little bit crazy, you're a little bit insane, but I kind of have to listen to you because of who you are, because who you have demonstrated yourself to be. My wife and I lived for five years in an inner-city neighborhood in Illinois, and our neighbor across the street was... Um, he was like a Muslim leader in the community across the street from us. His name was Rahim. And uh, he, he, had, he had converted to Islam while he was spending, I think he spent about 10 years incarcerated. And while he was incarcerated, he converted to Islam. And uh, we moved in, and like within the first week of living in the house, we just hit it off. And every time, he was like one of our best friends in the neighborhood. Every time we go back, we were just back a couple weeks ago, we had a long conversation with him. And in the first couple weeks that we moved in, we just had a bunch of these like really funny kind of conversations with each other on our front porch, on his front porch, in the yard, in the road. And he, you know, once once he kind of started to realize, like, we're following Jesus, and we're followers of Jesus, kind of influences everything we do, we're just trying to, like, follow Jesus. And I was, I was equipped with all the apologetics and all the evidence for the Bible and all this kind of stuff. I was, like, I was equipped with all that stuff. And, and he, one day, you know, we started kind of pressing into each other, having like a cross-cultural dialogue, cross, like interfaith dialogue, uh, understanding his faith, understanding my faith. And, uh, and he really started pushing me. He really started pushing me. But he didn't care about any of my apologetics. 
He was pushing me about my understanding of his worldview, my understanding of his faith, my understanding. And he's like, he's like, have you ever read the Quran? Have you, do you understand what it says? Do you understand where it came from? And I don't understand any of that. So I didn't know anything. And, and so he's trying to persuade me from his worldview. He's like, here's what the Quran is. Here's where it's from. Here's why it's, here's why it's an authority. Here's why we follow it. Here's what, it's, here's what it says. And, and, and he's like really pushing me. He's like, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? What do you think about that? But I haven't studied it in a day in my life. I don't know what to say. And I just kept being, he'd be, he'd be like pushing me about that, like Quran, 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 Quran. And I would just, I would just, every time I'd be in a conversation with him, I'd be like, look, man, I don't know about the Quran. <laughs> Maybe I can like learn with you over time. I'd love to have like an open kind of dialogue and discourse and learn a little bit with you. I don't quite understand what's going on. Look, all I know is I was broken and I, and I was hungry and I was dead in my transgressions and I was thirsty for something beyond me and I tried to meet that thirst and that hunger with sex and drugs and alcohol and the adrenaline of stealing things and everything just spiraled more and more into death and then one day on road 900 east 45 miles east of Bloomington in a ditch on the side of the road Jesus 2007 came and just grabbed my life in the middle of a car, in the middle of a ditch on the side of the road. And now because of him, I am free and I'm liberated and I'm, I don't have that. He has, he has nourished that hunger. He has quenched that thirst more than anything ever could. And, I'm, and I have this profound sense of joy that I could never find before, and I've got a sense of purpose, and, and, and I'm so convinced that he's like actually the only thing, the only one who could actually lead my life into truly life. It's, it's really all I've got, man. It's all I've got. Two weeks later, we're at the road, and he's like, so you're, you're, you're telling me you're like Christian. You're like super Christian. I said, yeah, dude. I, I guess I'm like, oh, I'm about Jesus, man. I'm about that life. And he says... He says, but don't you know all the atrocities that Christians have propagated in history? Don't you know about the Crusades? Don't you know about how they used the Bible to, to oppress people in slavery and how they used the Bible in the South to, to, to reaffirm Jim Crow? Don't you know what Christians have done in history? And I'm like, man, you're right. Christians are the worst, man. It's <laughs> bad. History is bad, dude. You're so right. But look, all I know is I was dead. <laughs> I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was spiraling out of control. I was dead in my transgressions. I had no hope. There was no righteousness which I could pursue. There was no life that I could secure for myself. And then I was on this road, 900 east, 45 miles east of Bloomington, Illinois, in a ditch, and Jesus. And now I'm free, and now I'm satisfied, and now I've discovered the secret of contentment in all things, whether in plenty or in one. And now I'm, I know him in such a way that I, 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 I feel joy in a way that I never could before, a life that is truly life. But yeah, Christians are terrible, like a hundred years ago. It's really bad. Still now, some of them are bad. The best evangelism book I've ever read was this book called Speaking of Jesus by Carl Medeiros. 
Carl Medeiros did decades of missionary work and church planting in, in hostile environments. And he just, he just had this way of like getting into spaces that you sh- as a Christian you should not get into. So he, he spent a lot of his time in Lebanon as like a, as like a very clear like, like missionary. And he would find himself, you read the books, all these stories of him like finding himself with like leaders, like I- Islam leaders, political leaders in Lebanon and at a table of influence with some of these people where most Christians are, are run out of the country or killed. And, and the way, like his primary tactic <laughs> that, would, that kept him alive and kept him in spaces to do ministry, and it's a tactic that he actually recommends now, like it's, it's kind of like a staple of his ministry, is to just not identify as Christian <laughs> and to just be a little aloof, like... So he'd be in he'd be, he'd be in like a political space with like leaders and and like sheiks and Islam leaders and they would be like they'd get into like worldview and religion and they they they'd start to allude maybe to like a Christian worldview and they'd be like well well just ask Carl Carl's a Christian Carl what do you think about this and Carl would be like what did you say I am did you what is that word and they said you're the Christian you're the one that's a Christian why don't you talk about this and he'd be like what's that word Christian Christian what is a what a, what are you saying I am I don't understand what you're saying. See, you're a Christian. You, I don't understand that word. What are you? I'm not that. I don't. I. And there's. They, they would eventually say, you know, the, about Jesus. You're about Jesus. You talk about Jesus. You're, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's me. That's me. I didn't know that other thing you were talking about. But if you're talking about Jesus, yeah, I follow Jesus. I'm. I'm all about Jesus. I talk about Jesus all the time. And they'd be like, yeah, that's what we're talking about. We just want you to talk about Jesus. We're talking about Jesus here. And he'd be like, yeah, sure, I'll talk about Jesus. I don't know that other thing you were talking about. And he this 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 kind of tactic would just like give him so much space. He just all he would talk about is Jesus. All he ever wanted to talk about was Jesus. And he just identified as a Jesus follower. Don't put all that other stuff on me. I don't know what you're talking about. What's that word? I don't get it. Who is that? It's not me. I just follow Jesus. And he just had this relentless ability to just testify constantly to the reality and the encounter and the radical nature and the transformational good news of Jesus and to disentangle. Made me wonder all week how often we speak of Jesus, how freely we speak of Jesus, how much we desire to speak of Jesus, how, how, how loose with our tongue and our mouth we are about Jesus, about our testimony of Jesus, about our encounter with Jesus, about his nature, about who he is. How often do you share testimony? How often do you testify? How many testimonies do you have? Does your microchurch have a culture of testimony? And I want to get extremely practical about this. Very practical. The rest of my time. Very, very practical. Because Revelation 12.11 says that the people of God will overcome the accuser by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. So we better be practical about this. You want to punch Jesus in the face? Anybody want to do that? Or not Jesus. The devil. You want to punch the devil in his face? Nobody rose their hand on the first one. That was a test. That was a test. That was a test. Anybody want to punch the devil in the face? Anybody want to punch the devil? Punch the devil in the face. You guys passed that first. You want to punch the devil in the face this morning? Let's talk about it. I want to talk about how to do it, how to really, really do it, how to really do it. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony this morning. It's like one of our best tools. Let's not lay it down. Let's not leave it behind. Let's not forget about it might be all we got. 
So five quick, I promise quick. I say the word five and you're like, oh my gosh, we might as well pack a lunch, you know. Five quick practical points on testimony. One, everyone has one. Every single person has one. Even if you think yours isn't cool or like it's not crazy enough or it's not radical enough or something like that. Everybody has one. And it's one of my pet peeves. I mean, people have seen me cringe or like get a little angry when people say, I don't really have a testimony. It drives me nuts. Drives me nuts. And I know what you're saying. What you're saying is God saved me from drugs, sex, and alcohol when I was two years old. And I was, I, you know, was in VBS my whole life. And I've been a Christian since I, I don't even remember when I decided. Somebody decided for me and I just, I just agreed. I agreed when I was six. I agreed with a decision somebody else made. But when somebody says that, when somebody says to me, I don't really have a testimony, what I want to, what I want to, you know, I'm a little sarcastic if you know me or you don't know me, and I don't, you know, sometimes it's bad, I, it's a character development thing, but sometimes, you know, what I want to respond is like, like, I don't really have a testimony. What I want to say back is like, oh, so you don't know Jesus. <laughs> well, no, 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 I know Jesus. I know Jesus. Oh, so what you mean is he's never actually done anything of meaning in your life. Oh, no, of course he has. Well, then I, what I hear is testimony. What I hear is testimony right there. If Jesus has done anything of meaning in your life, what I hear is testimony. And something to which can be testified. Something which can actually be spoken to as, I was, I was, and Jesus, and I am now. So for the actual love of God, please don't say that. Please don't ever say it. So one, everyone has one. Everyone has a testimony. Two, Jesus is the main character in every testimony, and when he's not, it's really awkward. We testify about Jesus, how gracious and powerful and loving he is, not about how bad we were then or how good we are now. That's not the point. Secondary to the point. We're, we're, trying, we're, 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 we're supporting actors and supporting actresses. We're not the main character. We're not the protagonist. This, is, this reminds me of Jesus' encounter, this, this event that we do you know, once, sometimes twice a year, where we get people together for like a whole week and a Friday, Saturday of just experiencing the love of God, going through the whole story of the gospel together, worshiping. There's like these seven sessions and seven different talks, and all those talks are just people like telling a radical story of how God encountered them. You, you, I've been a part of those and serving at them and directing them for years, and I feel like I've, my pockets are just full of stories about Jesus. And some people, man, they could get the Academy Award for supporting actor and actress, but it's not their story. It's not their story. He's the protagonist. And we come away just worshiping. God is so... Big, so glorious, so loving, so gracious, so merciful, beyond our imagination. So one, everyone has one. Two, Jesus is the main character in every testimony. And three, a conversion moment is not your only testimony. But you can testify about everyday glory, everyday mercy, everyday provision, everyday presence, everyday goodness from God. Every day. You're loaded with them. If you just look for them, think about them, catch them, tell them, 
all the time. He didn't just deliver us from death to life once, but he delivers us from despair to joy, from anxiety to rest, from oppression to liberation, from the unseen to the seen, from wanting to contentment. Constantly delivering us, constantly working in us. I was in I was in Manila a couple weeks ago. We were a bunch of us went to the slums of Manila, and we were doing it was a part of movement school, and we all lived uh, uh, in host homes in the slums of Manila. And the, the house that I was in. Uh, for for five six days was an eight foot by twelve foot room that uh, a mom and and anywhere between four and five kids at a time were staying in there with me and it was just one room and and at night after dinner you fold up the table and everybody just finds a spot on the concrete and everybody goes to sleep and my 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 hips are not designed for that kind of night of sleep <laughs> my hips are just on fire all week and that you know the the it's like rainy season, and they've got all these holes in the roof, so you're just getting rained on all night. But nobody cares except me. I'm the only one who cares. And 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 there's this there's this little piece of me that like that like my hips hurt, and I'm getting bad sleep, and you know I'm starting to feel like futile and like a little bit complainy in my soul. And then there's one night where we're all sitting in the living room. All these neighbors come over. We've got like ten people in the room, and they're all sitting in a circle. And uh, they've got they've got kind of this slapstick humor. So one of the ladies is like, "This is kind of like house church." And, and 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 then another person's like, "Yeah, let's just do house church." And they're kind of like joking around. And they point at one of the guys and they say, "You do the opening prayer." And then they point at Regal was there. They point at Regal and they said, "You lead worship." <laughs> and then they they pointed at me and they're like, "You do the sermon." And then they they pointed at somebody else and they're like, "You you close it out." And they're like joking around. But then we actually started doing it and it suddenly became like house church. We're doing church. It's happening right now. It like shifted. The, the temperature in the room temp shifted so fast from like, ha ha, this is so great, to like, Lord, come. It was like, re- it like turned. Like, 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 the, like they, they don't mess around. It's like you could just do church at any time. You just don't know. Like Spirit of God is just like, well, right, we're doing it. Let's do it. And we're like going around the room, and I just tell this. They wanted me to do the sermon or whatever. And I, so I just tell this quick, like I was talking about, Jesus and the, the the disciples in the boat in the storm, and how the disciples are freaking out about the storm, and Jesus is just like taking a nap. He's just taking a nap. <laughs> and 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 you know we were just talking about like man, it's better to be in the to rest in the storm with Jesus than to be in the calm without him. And and we were kind of like having this diet. That was kind of the word. And we were, but it was like five ten minutes, like just like to like say a quick thing or whatever. And we're going, and I just told a quick story from my life about how that was meaningful for me right now. And we go around the room, and these people, uh, there was a there was a fire that went through the slums like two months before we got there, and and it and it took seven thousand families out of their homes. Seven thousand people lost their homes in this fire through the slum, and the people just dispersed to other people's homes like through the slum. So they're still there; they're just living in other people's homes. And we're going around the room, and people are just like talking, like 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 from their own story, and resonating with that. And this one woman's like, "Yeah, like like, you're right. I'm tempted right now. I'm tempted right now to be to be freaking out, and to be like, to be trying to like pour the water out of the boat, and to and to be like really stressed and anxious because my house doesn't have a roof and one of the walls. I only have three walls, and it's rainy season. But I can rest in Christ Jesus." I can trust him. And I have so much joy. And she's just laughing, giggling the whole time. She's like cracking jokes on everybody. She's like the most lively one. And I'm just internally, and everybody just thinks this is normal. And internally I'm like, what just happened? 
like my little story of like trying to trust God and all this kind of stuff. And she's like, yeah, my house doesn't have a roof or a wall. And it's rainy season. And then the next person's like, yeah, I lost my entire house. I don't have anything. I don't even know where my kids are. They're staying at other people's houses because I can't house them right now. And, and I'm not even sure where I'm going to stay any other night. But I can trust God. I can rest. I feel like I can still rest. I still get good sleep because I can trust God. And internally I'm like, what is happening? What is this? And these people are just going around the room just testifying, testifying to the goodness of God about like, I could be blank, 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 but God, and so I am full of trust, full of rest. I'm not worried at all. I'm not worried at all. It's just every time Jesus shows up in your life, you have a testimony. You, every fresh mercy, every answered prayer, every encounter is a new chapter in the biography of God that we're all contributing to. So everyone has a testimony. Jesus is the main character of every testimony. A conversion moment is not the only testimony you have. And this fourth one's really important. Microchurch leaders, I need you to like zone in right here. People who have like leadership and influence over a community of people in here, I need you to hear this. Testifying people come from testifying communities. As a microchurch leader, one of the best ways to equip your people to share the gospel with the world is to testify to each other. Do you share about Jesus to each other? Do you talk about God with each other? Do you testify about what God's doing to each other? I think about it sort of like muscle memory, like, like, like the classic examples are like knitting or like piano. At some, at some point, maybe when you're first starting, you're, you're telling your fingers what to play. You're very conscious. You're thinking about it. You're telling your fingers what to knit. But then eventually it, your, your fingers get like this memory in them, this programmed memory in the neurology of your muscle memory where you're just imagining the sound and your fingers are just playing them without you actually telling your fingers what to do. My classic muscle memory is driving. So my, when I pull into my driveway, there's a place where my wife parks and there's a place where I park. And my wife hates it when she, her car is parked in my spot. It's like a very sore spot for us. But when I'm pulling her car into our driveway, I always put it in my spot because I'm not thinking. Like my arms are just like, well, I'm home, and I just park it in my spot. Sometimes she's in the car with me, and I pull into the driveway, and I just start pulling into my spot. She's like, no, no, don't, stop. Put it in my spot. It's my car. We're not driving your truck. Put it in my spot. Same thing happens when I'm like driving north on 275. If I'm driving north on 275 with an intent to go somewhere not my office, I go to my office first, and then I punch myself, and then I go to where I intended to go. Home Depot, anywhere on Fletcher, anything like that. I'm going to go to my office, pull up, and realize, why am I here? Hit myself. And then go to where I was. It's just muscle memory. It's just like you're not you're not telling. I'm not telling my body to do that. It's just like it. I, my body has a memory of its own, and it's where I'm going to go. I think part of how we speak, part of how we talk, is is part of how we testify. Testifying itself, testimony itself about Jesus. Speaking of Jesus is like a movement. It's like the. It's like the programmed memory of your mouth, your tongue. How quick are you to it? How, how loose are you with it? How, how ready are you? How often have you done it? It's like, a, it's like muscle memory. The more you do it, the easier it is, the more, the more unconscious and natural and involuntary it becomes. 
You find yourself in a spiritual conversation and it can either feel like you're driving north on 275 and without thinking you just wind up at your office. Or it can feel arduous and you're really trying to think about what to say and exactly how to say it and and where's the right entry point in the conversation and it never quite comes and you're, you're it feels awkward and you're not quite sure. You're jumbling around and not sure how to do it. I think some of the best evangelism training you can do and the best activating you can do for the people that you lead is to sit them around a dinner table and to say, what, how are you different right now than you were a month ago because of the work of God in your life? Everybody answer. And every time somebody answers, and it might be the first time they're thinking about it in six months, and as soon as they start thinking about it, they, they think of something. Yeah, God has really been doing this in me. I, I do, I am different. And as soon as somebody answers the question, immediately saying, that's amazing. Praise God. Who should you tell that tomorrow? Verbatim. Who needs to know that about Jesus, about his work in your life, about what he's doing in you? Tomorrow, this week. See, apologetics and sound arguments are nice. Our testimony of a transforming encounter with God is better Better, 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 better. The worship team would come up. I've got my last and fifth point of five points about a testimony. Five points about testifying. And it's a little bit of a hard one, and I want you to just have the, have the courage, the bravery to let your guard down a little bit and enter into it with me. I've been at the, at the altar of this reality all week. I've been in a position of repentance and confession all week. I've been begging God to meet with me in this space all week. Can you come with me? Being influenced by the world is the death of your testimony. It will kill your testimony. The world wants to convince you that death is life and that life is death. It wants to call lies true and it wants to call the truth lies. It wants to convince you that Babylon is the kingdom of God. And it wants to convince you that the kingdom is Babylon. You see, Paul, at the end of this exchange, he's, he's, but he, Festus jumps in and he accuses him of, of being insane. Bro, you're insane. What is wrong with you? You're such a you're such a reasonable man. You're such a learned man. What is what is wrong with you? You're going mad. And his response is so it comes from such an important place. When he says short time or long, I pray to God that not only you but all who are listening in this room, every single person who has eyes on me, will become like me except for these chains would that fly today you're in some campus lecture hall or something you're on twitter how does that sound i wish everyone who sees this tweet Everyone who hears my voice, whether it be a short time or long time, become as I am. That's arrogant. You don't know me. You don't know what's right for me. You don't know what's good for me. What makes you think? What makes you so entitled that you think you know what's best for me? 
what's wrong and what's right, what's good and what's bad for me. You don't know me. That's so exclusive. It's, it's so oppressive. Don't be jamming your worldview down my throat. You don't know me and what's good for me. But he says, I don't care who's in the room. Anybody got eyes on me, short time or long, I pray. It is the, it is the core desire of my heart. I pray, I beg God that you would become as I am. If you haven't testified in a long time, if you haven't testified to the reality of Jesus, your encounter with Jesus, the love of Jesus, in a long time to someone who doesn't know Jesus, to somebody who's, to, who, who is not yet found, somebody who's far from God, somebody who's unreached, if you haven't testified in a long time, I wonder how often you actually pray for people who do not know Jesus to know him. Your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your family. And if you haven't prayed for a long time, if you, if, you, if, you, if you haven't labored in prayer, you don't even remember a time when you labored in prayer for somebody who doesn't know Jesus to know Jesus, or multiple people who don't know Jesus to know Jesus, I wonder how much you actually care about that person or people who do not know Jesus. How much you care to see them know Jesus. How much you care for them to be found. How much you care for them to enter into the kingdom. And if you don't care for people who don't know Jesus to find him, I wonder if you've been discipled by the world to believe that death is life and life is death. And that truth are lies and lies are truth. And that Babylon is actually the kingdom of God and that the kingdom is Babylon. And there might be a part of you guys, just if you could just be brave, I'm not going to let make you raise your hand or admit to something. There might be a part of you that actually is jealous of the world and its pleasures and its freedoms and what people can do and how they can just go find themselves and just decide their own path and pursue all the luxury and pleasure they want. They don't have to think about all these things and all these complexities and they don't have all this rigor. And, and so, simultaneously to being a little bit jealous of the world, there might be a part of you that's grown weary of the kingdom and its restrictions and its rules and its yoke and its binding. And why do I have to think about all this stuff and follow all this stuff? It just feels so burdensome. And I'm telling you, the moment you think about it in those two categories, the moment you think you're a little bit jealous of Babylon and all its freedoms and the kingdom of God and all its restrictions, you've already been discipled by the world. You've already been discipled by the world to see, to see bondage as freedom and to see freedom as bondage. See, if you have no desire to share your faith, to testify to the reality of Jesus in your life, if you no longer hunger to see people know Jesus, to see the lost be found, you've been discipled by the world. Your eyes have been trained to see what the world sees. Your heart has been trained to feel what the world feels. There's no other way around that reality. I cannot soften it any more than I already have. 
And if that's you, if that's even a little bit you, like it was this week for me, and I've had to sit at the altar in repentance and wrestle with God, God, what is this in me? What's happening in me? What's happening to my eyes? What's happening to my heart? If that's you, even a little bit, or a lot of it, and you're wondering, what do I do? I'm cut to the heart. What do I do, God? What do I do? What are you, what, what do I, what are you asking me this morning? This morning in response during worship, I, you just need to, do two, you need to do two things this morning. You need to remember your testimony. You need to remember your I was. You need to remember what, from what you, God, Jesus delivered you from. You need to remember that it was death. It was terrible. The grass isn't greener back there. It's not rose petal glasses or whatever, however you're remembering it. That was terrible. And you've got to remember that from which he has delivered you. And, re- and remember the redemptive work of Christ Jesus in your life. The closer you are to that memory of his grace and his mercy and his love and his pursuit of you, the closer your eyes and your heart are to being formed by that, by him. But guys, that memory is not enough. That memory of something that happened a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, a month ago, it's not enough. You need a fresh encounter with Christ Jesus right now, this morning. You need it right now. Right now. You need him right now. Trade the worldview of Babylon for the truth of the kingdom this morning. Return to the heart of God from which you have briefly departed this morning. Come, come, beg this morning. God, come and encounter me this morning. Repent and ask for his heart, for his mind, for his sight, for the lost around you. And beg for their sake. Intercede for them. Be in solidarity with them. Ask for them. Beg for them. Go to them. Commit yourself this morning, whether it be short time or long, short time or long, to testify to the work of Jesus in your life at every opportunity that the lost would be found and that the accuser would be beat down by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. Amen. As we come to the table this morning, we remember in this prophetic act We remember for us that which he delivered us from. We remember that we were dead in our transgressions. We had no hope. We had no righteousness of our own. It was all his. And he came. He came for us out of his great love. And so this morning, come to receive these elements. And and after you've taken these elements and we're responding in worship, we're going to have prayer ministry available in the front, on the right and the left. And if you're and if you're stirred by God this morning, if any of that, if any of that, if He's speaking, if any of that meant something for you, if you, if you're wanting uh, to return to His heart, to His mind, would you come this morning? We want to intercede with you. We want to pray with you. And if you're actually hungry to see people who who don't know Jesus know Him, if you if you've got people in mind that this morning you're just like God, I'm begging you, come. We want to intercede with you for those people by name, and just and just beg for God to come. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body broken for you. When you eat it, you eat it in memory of me. In the same way, he took the cup poured it out, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. When you drink it, you drink it in memory of me.